Hello, podcast world, and welcome to Deeply Spiritual But Rather Uncertain. I have literally been blown away by the response to the last podcast, so thank you. And in the midst of that, I've heard from people whose lives and families have been deeply impacted because someone in their family has come out as gay. I've heard stories of families that are doing their best to understand and to love their gay child, but they still struggle with the, but what does God think of this question? I've heard stories of teenagers and young adults that have been shunned from their Christian families and even asked to leave home. It's heartbreaking to hear some of these stories. I don't want to bore you with stats, but let me give you just a few. It seems that among queer teenagers, the attempted suicide rate is around 18%. That is double the rate of straight teens. And nearly half of queer kids have reported contemplating suicide because of their orientation. But it gets worse. According to the Family Acceptance Project, queer young adults who reported higher levels of family rejection during their adolescence were eight times more likely to attempt suicide when compared with peers from families that reported no or low levels of family rejection. More often than not, these kids are in our conservative churches. Many of them are still closeted because they fear the rejection of their families and their communities. They've heard the pastor say that the gays are abomination to God and a threat to the family. So they lay awake at night begging God to fix them. They cringe when some well-meaning person asks them if they have a girlfriend yet but they continue to hide in fear that someone might find out and they live with this belief that they are fatally flawed. Something is desperately wrong with this picture. Can you imagine what it would be like if the Christian church and Christians in general were totally accepting and affirming to these young people? If they knew when they came out, they would be met with love and acceptance rather than criticism or judgmentalism. If a young girl could bring her new girlfriend home to meet her parents or to church on Sunday without the fear of being excluded or judged. If the church and Christians were inclusive and affirming, it seems to me that the stats would be very different. It seems that the stats of Christian LGBTQ kids who attempted suicide or experienced depression or escaped into drug use would be way lower than the national average. Can you imagine? Maybe then the world would look at the church and say, there must be something to this Jesus thing. Look how they love and accept each other. So I can hear what is going on in the minds of so many right now. Okay, that would be great. That would be amazing. But what about the Bible? The Bible is clear on this issue. It condemns homosexual behavior. 
Ah, yes, that pesky Bible always gets in the way of loving people, doesn't it? Okay, enough of the sarcasm. In all seriousness, the Bible is not at all clear on this issue. It's pretty clear on excessive erotic sexual behavior, but not on committed, monogamous, sacrificial same-sex relationship. It wasn't long after Jesus' death and resurrection that the new Jesus followers started questioning what they had always believed. See, the problem was that all these Gentiles were wanting to be followers of Jesus as well. And to make matters worse, you had Paul going around to all the Gentile areas, inviting them to be part of this new movement. What's important to understand was this movement was not outside of Judaism. It was very much within. Paul and the disciples were not looking to start a new thing called Christianity. They were looking to reform Judaism from the inside out. So when all these Gentiles wanted to be a part of this movement, they had to become Jewish. But the Bible said... You had to be circumcised in order to become Jewish, and then you can follow Jesus. Needless to say, the Gentiles, especially the men, were not too impressed. So much debate ensued. Finally, after this big council, they decided to ditch the old rules about circumcision that were very clear in the Bible and let the Gentiles in without being circumcised. In fact, what they said was this, let's not make it hard for the Gentiles to follow Jesus. You can read it all in Acts chapter 15. Did they abandon the scriptures? Absolutely not. They just realized they needed to see them differently. In light of what was going on in their world, in light of all that Jesus had taught them, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, they needed to rethink and reinterpret the scriptures and what they had always believed. In the early 1600s, Galileo published a book in which he declared that the earth revolved around the sun. Before this time, it was believed that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around the earth. The church was really upset with this new theory. After all, the Bible is very clear in a number of passages that the earth doesn't move. The sun revolves around the earth. Ecclesiastes 1.5 says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Numerous passages repeat the sentiment of Psalm 104, verse 5, which says, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. The church believed that the Bible was very clear on this subject. Galileo was placed on trial for heresy because of his views. And it was only in 1992 
that Pope John Paul II admitted publicly that Galileo was wrongly accused. But somewhere between the 1600s and the 1900s, theologians began to admit that science had some pretty clear evidence that what Christians had always believed the Scripture taught in this regard was wrong. And they went back and they looked at those passages in light of what they now knew, and they came to the conclusion that the way they interpreted what the Bible was saying was wrong. Today we read verses like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5 very differently because we know some things. The same thing happened when it comes to slavery. At the time the New Testament was written, slavery was totally accepted. The most anti-slavery thing that you'll find in the New Testament is that you should treat your slaves with some level of respect. Paul suggested to Philemon that the slave name Onesimus should be freed, but that's it. He never implied that all slaves should be freed. Mostly, the Bible just says slaves obey your masters and never condemns the idea of slavery. But somewhere in the 1700s, theologians began to look at slavery differently. They began to see it in the context of justice and mercy, and they started to see it in the context of the whole arc of Scripture. And today the Christian church sees slavery as completely unacceptable in any way, shape, or form. Did they totally reject the Bible or the authority of Scripture? Not at all. They just looked at these passages differently. They reinterpreted them because they came to believe they were wrong in their belief about slavery. In South Africa, the apartheid system was propped up by the church and a theological system that supported it. While apartheid was a political structure, it was grounded in and justified by theology and the Bible. But then new radical theologians and pastors stood up and declared a new and a different way to interpret those scriptures that were used to oppress anybody that was not white, and the apartheid system came crashing down. They didn't reject the Bible, but thankfully they reinterpreted it. The same thing has happened with the role of women in society and in the church, although for some reason the debate is still raging in some circles. More and more, women are being fully accepted in terms of leadership and teaching in the church. Have we completely thrown out Scripture? Have we completely disowned Paul because he said that women should keep quiet in the church or that an elder must be the husband of one wife, i.e. he should be male? No, we have just begun to understand those verses differently, and then we've applied that to our time in history. All that to say this, I would suggest it's time we do the same thing with the LGBTQ issue. We need to look at these passages of Scripture differently. We need to see our LGBTQ brothers and sisters in light of the entire arc of Scripture and not just a few verses. We don't have to throw out the Bible in order to do that. 
We just have to do what Christians have done since the beginning, admit we were wrong, repent, and move forward. My friends, what we are doing is not working. Queer people don't feel like they belong in our churches or our families. They don't feel welcome no matter what the sign says on our buildings. They don't feel like God is a good, good father, and they don't want any part of our faith no matter how good our coffee is. This is not working. Same-sex relationships are just not natural. After all, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah, we've all heard those arguments, and if that horrible reference to Adam and Eve is triggering for you, I apologize. But it does take us to the core of the argument when it comes to what is considered natural and unnatural. Genesis 1 and 2. Creation. The creation story isn't one of the six passages or so that speak to same-sex relationships, but it's the filter through which we read those six or seven passages, so I think it might be worthwhile to start there. When I say it's the filter, this is what I mean. We read in Genesis that when a suitable helper could not be found for Adam, the man, then God created a woman not another man. And then it goes on to say that man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so the argument is this. This is what's natural. Sexual relations between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. That's how God created us. So then I filter everything else I read through that. Theologians use the word complementarity when speaking of this issue. Men and women are both human, both created in the image of God, but they are different and they complement each other. They fit together. They were created for each other. In his book, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex Relationships, James Brownson goes to great lengths to unpack the issue of complementarity in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm only going to scratch the surface of all there is to say. But if you want to dive into this more, this book is a must-read. I'll put it in the notes below. It's not an easy read, but it is excellent. First of all, Brownson highlights the fact that when people speak of complementarity, they are not always speaking of the same thing. Some people speak of complementarity in terms of hierarchy, which is a gentle way of saying patriarchy. God created woman like the men, but there is a pecking order, man and then woman. That's clearly the way most of the writers of the Bible saw it because that was the view of Jewish culture. Now, we've softened the hierarchy debate a bit in modern times to the idea that men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but they have different roles. And the role of the man is over the woman, or you could say the role of the husband is over the wife. 
there is a chain of command, sometimes it's called. So what does that have to do with LGBTQ, you ask? In a female same-sex relationship, one of the partners has to take the role of the leader, of the dominant partner, which some would say is not natural. And in the case of male same-sex relationships, one of the men has to take the role of the subordinate, which is not what he was created for. Therefore, it's unnatural. We'll talk about this more when we get into specific biblical passages because it's important to understand and it's underpinned much of the anti-LGBTQ debate for years. I would suggest that the arc of Scripture teaches the equality of men and women, both in the eyes of God and in their roles. Patriarchy was never God's plan. I feel like I'm all over the place at the minute, so let me summarize what I'm saying here. The argument is that you can't have a same-sex relationship or marriage because God created this hierarchy, man and woman. So it has to be a man and a woman in a relationship for that God-created hierarchy to be as God intended. That is what's natural, so they would say. I would argue that the role of women in the world and in the church is that of complete equality in all areas of life and leadership. And so the complementarity hierarchy debate is eliminated. I've done a few podcasts on this issue that go back to, I think, October of 2019. So if you'd like to know more about the role of women in the world and the church, you can check those out. Another thing that people talk about is that men and women complement each other physically. In other words, they, they fit together, which makes heterosexual relationships natural and anything outside of that unnatural. In the simplest of terms, I would say this. The text does not say that. Some would say, sure, but the whole one flesh thing implies that it's true. But here's the deal. There's no other place in Scripture that speaks of this. If this was the whole reason that men and women are created for each other, then you would think it would come up somewhere else. It just is not there. You can't say that this idea is biblical. So to say that heterosexuality is natural and everything else is unnatural because we complement each other anatomically is just not a biblical argument. Then there's the procreation argument that falls into this complementarity debate. Some would say that sexual intercourse and marriage is primarily about procreation because God said, be fruitful and multiply. Of course, this is impossible in a same-sex relationship. Well, if you believe that, then it rules out any kind of contraceptive use because you eliminate the possibility of procreation which is, of course, a debate that's been going on in the Catholic Church for years and years. It also then just reduces sex to a physical activity, and we all know it's so much more than that. 
Yes, procreation is important and a part of how we're created. But to say that if a relationship is not able to procreate, it is unnatural or sinful, again, it is not a biblical argument. Sometimes people speak of the fact that Adam was incomplete. And so God created Eve to complete him. So therefore, a man needs a woman to complete him. In some respects, that makes sense to me because I know the importance of Sheila in my life. I could easily say that she completes me. But the idea breaks down very quickly when I look at the life of Jesus, for example. Was he incomplete because he never married a woman? Okay, so let's say it's different with Jesus. What about Paul or the countless single people in the world? In the story of creation, the issue was not Adam's incompleteness, but rather his aloneness that was a problem. It is not good that a human being is alone. We need other humans. To say that same-sex relationships are not natural because you can't be completed by someone of the same sex is just wrong. And again, for purposes of our conversation, it is not a biblical argument. So that brings me to the phrase, one flesh, that is spoken of in Genesis 2 and repeated by both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. Let me read this from the second creation story in Genesis chapter 2. God has sent all the animals before Adam to name and in the process look for a partner because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. This starts at verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I have always loved that last verse. I have probably quoted it in at least 99% of the weddings I've ever conducted, and there's been a lot of those. The idea of oneness speaks to marriage in such a beautiful way. I've often told the bride and groom that part of this oneness means that two journeys become one, that two stories become one story. And the imagery of that is just fantastic. Traditionally, Christians have believed that one flesh happens when the man and the woman have sexual intercourse after the marriage. They would say one flesh is a lot about sex, but it has to be between a man and a woman because this verse says it's between a man and a woman. It's all about gender. And so same-sex marriages are not able to achieve one flesh. But if you go to the Hebrew lexicon, you find the word that is translated flesh in Genesis is the same word for relatives. 
And I would suggest that one flesh means a kinship group, a family, if you will. But let me take it a step further. Adam makes this statement, Eve is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This language is used a number of times in the Old Testament, and every time it is used to express kinship, not gender-exclusive relationship. It is about family. When two people are joined in marriage, a new family is created. There is something mystical about family bonds. When the, when the Bible speaks of one flesh in Genesis and elsewhere, it's not speaking of physical complementarity, but to the common bond of shared kinship. So here's what I'm saying in all this. When we read these passages in the Bible that speak of homosexuality as unnatural, like the one Paul wrote in Romans 1, we cannot use Genesis as the filter through which we read the use of the word unnatural. I'm not suggesting that Paul is in favor of same-sex relationships, but I am suggesting that we can't use the creation story and the fact that God creates man and woman as the filter through which we read everything else. I think I'll leave it there for now, and we'll jump back into this next time. But let me give you a little teaser for the next episode. We're going to start looking at the Old Testament passages that condemn same-sex behavior. And let me be really clear here. The Bible does condemn same-sex relationships in these passages. But the question that we have to ask is, why? Why is such an important question? And the reason I started with the creation story is because so often it is used as the why behind the statements of Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians and others. We think, well, the why is easy because God created us that way. But if we take that off the table as the why, it will force us to see things that we may have never considered before. Before I go, let me mention my Patreon page. If you're able to help financially with just a little every month, it would be incredibly helpful. The site allows you to enter as little as a dollar a month off your credit card, no matter where you are in the world. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins, and that link is in the episode notes as well. But thanks so much for listening and being willing to work through such a complicated, emotive, but incredibly important subject. We'll see you next time. Shalom. Shalom.